Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in there? You'll right. never make any money doing that. How are you going to get a mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try to settle that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? Oh, boy. Were your parents morons too? Savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations, that really turned out well. I'm really good job. I'm getting ready! I'm ready! You know, I wish I had thought of that. I never thought of you to win this. How could you do that? I'm so glad you're here. I wish I had the courage to follow my friends. Hey, good morning, everybody! Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. We are broadcasting a on Lakes Radio, WLCB 101.5 FM from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. I am your host, Doris Nagel. And why am I here? Because I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself and I love helping other business people. I've counseled lots of startups and businesses over the years as part of my law and consulting practice. And I've also helped or started to help at least nine different businesses and who boy have I made a lot of mistakes along the way. So my goal here is to share what I've learned, find other experts to also share their advice and insight. I welcome your questions, your comments, your suggestions. If there's a topic you want to hear about, challenges you're dealing with, you want to be a guest on the show or know somebody who'd be a great guest, just email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. I would love to hear from you, and the show will be better for your input. And with that, I would like to introduce our esteemed guest for today here in our studio. The topic today is business innovation and product launches, new product launches. It's pretty important for most businesses. So with us live today to talk about that are Deborah Kurtz and Andrea Nosek from Kurtz Consulting. So quick introduction, Deb is the founder and president of Kurtz Consulting, hence Deborah Kurtz, and for the last 25 years she's been recognized as an expert in building financial performance, developing innovative products and services, and helping grow market share. She's held titles in the past of President, VP of Sales, Director of Marketing, and Director of Sales. She's the author of numerous articles. She's a frequent speaker, and she serves on a variety of advisory boards in healthcare, both corporate and nonprofit. And Andrea, her right-hand person, has over 20 years' experience herself in sales, marketing, and product management leadership roles. Prior to joining Deb at Kurtz Consulting in 2013, she had senior roles with Baxter Healthcare and Amerisource Bergen, among others. She has also a very extensive digital and social media background. Kurtz Consulting has been in business since 2004, helping companies grow their top line, and we'll hear more about what they do and how they do it in just a minute. So first, though, I'd like to welcome formally Deb and Andrea to, to the show. Thanks so much for being with us today in the studio. Doris, thank you so much. This is Deb Kurtz, and right next to me is Andrea Nosek. Hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> 
We are thrilled to be here today and really appreciative of the opportunity. We'd like to talk today about innovation, and we've uh, crowdsourced some questions that we've heard from frequent entrepreneurs, and we thought we'd go over those today. And what we should probably mention is the best practices we're going to speak to are transferable across industry, across verticals. But because we focus in the healthcare space, a lot of our examples and a couple of the best practices we'll share will be particularly germane to companies that innovate in med tech or health tech. Excellent. So uh, let's just talk a little bit about what you mean by innovation. Let's just start there because people talk about being innovative and I, I think it might mean different things to different people. What's it mean to you? Well, thank you for asking that question because you're right. We approach innovation very much from the revenue side of helping our clients move the needle on, on corporate growth. But that's not to say that innovation doesn't exist in other processes. You know, my husband's a software engineer, and he'll tell you about innovation and how he approaches validating code. And certainly there is innovation in all aspects of life. But we'd like to really focus today in the area of bringing new products and services to the marketplace, things that are creative to a company's growth. And in particular, the path that entrepreneurs should follow that we've seen as a best practice. So that's what we'd like to focus on today. I think innovation is really a critical topic for companies to keep up with changing demand and the marketplace. So what are the things companies should think about as they focus on innovation? I think a lot of times we see organizations approach us and they're in one of two spaces. Either they have this brilliant concept that they're just thrilled to be bringing to market in whatever stage it is from a fuzzy drawing on a napkin to a product that's ready to launch and needs our help to very established companies that want to create innovative skunk works divisions. And that in particular is a real a sweet spot for us is a lot of our clients are what I call in the mid-market space. You may not have ever heard of them, but they're very robust clients. They have well-established practices in bringing new products and innovations to the marketplace, but oftentimes they want to let some of their creative folks go off in a corner and not be encumbered by the, by the constraints of the rest of their corporate environment and want to see them go off and incubate a product. And I think, you know, there's been a lot in the literature about this as well. So, so example, is that a good like thing? 3M. So is that a good thing? I mean, For our clients, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen that a lot of great creativity happens when you take a couple people from an organization and give them some free time to go work on their Skunk Works project. And that's oftentimes where we get brought in because those little teams often don't have the bandwidth to do all the functions that are necessary to bring a new product to the table, particularly when we look at product market fit. And that's an area where oftentimes um, the zeal of the innovation get overlooks like the attractiveness of that innovation to the marketplace. Well, right. You have this danger for small businesses and entrepreneurs in general, right? Which is you have this great idea. Your friends around you tell you it's a great idea, but the fact that you've produced it or offered it doesn't necessarily mean the market is ready for it. So the, the old adage like the movie Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come, isn't necessarily the case. And I think that's what you're, you're getting at. 
So I uh, recently had a client that brought a new product to market. It was really an innovation over the existing product. It happened to be an OR product. And it operating was... Operating room. Operating room, for right? You, for those of you not in <laughs> Sorry. healthcare. And it was really beautifully engineered. They brought us into into the project to do an inside sales project for them because they thought, wow, we've built this great product. Everybody's going to want it. Right. And we specifically targeted surgeons that were doing a specific type of surgery. And everybody thought, well, this is just going to be great. Well, six months later, they hadn't sold any. And so, so had they done any market research at all, formal market research? Uh, I think they were missing some voice of customer. Yeah. You know, it, it's not sufficient just to build a better mousetrap. There has to be a need. There has to be, uh, people have to see it as having value. And, you know, you really, as an entrepreneur, I think the point I really wanted to make was you have to be ready to pivot. You have to be ready to change your direction, change your strategy based on how the market's responding to you. Entrepreneurs always are in love with their product. Oh, yeah. in love with their idea. Absolutely. But sometimes that idea needs to be tweaked. Yeah. Well, it's difficult because entrepreneurs, by definition, are a passionate, rather stubborn bunch as a whole, right? I mean, (laughs) and if you're not stubborn... Uh, you probably won't make it because there are so many obstacles you face that every time somebody gave you bad feedback or told you about a problem you hadn't anticipated, you just melt and say, never mind, I'm going back to my day job. So there's that fine balance, right, between an entrepreneur who has this idea and is passionate about it but still has the ability to listen and to pivot. So... That, that's a challenge. Um, you've raised an interesting point, though, about market acceptance. So what kind of market research do you need to do? Well, I mean, maybe you don't have enough money for a detailed market study, but then again, asking a few friends and family is probably, is probably not sufficient, right? Well, you have to remember, you know, our background is coming from inventing complex medical solutions. So, you know, while our friends and family are our biggest fans, they're not necessarily the audience we would go to to validate concepts. Well, they're not, right? they're not potential customers not at is all. what you're saying. So when, what we help organizations do is look at the key stakeholders that are involved around the solution to uh, the problem itself and then the potential solution that the entrepreneur is looking to bring to the table. And sometimes those key stakeholders can be often overlooked audiences. For example, we again were working in the operating room space and we were working with a client and we were helping them with what we call user testing. So when you get to a prototype stage, you want to get feedback, real world feedback from users. And we realized that the cleaning staff had been overlooked in the stakeholder list, right? Because you, you really don't think about, you think about how the device is used or what the procedure is, but the cleaning is an important part of the procedure. It just 
part when the procedure's over. Right. And without the voice of the cleaning staff, we could see how there were several some design considerations that should have been addressed and weren't by overlooking this important stakeholder group. So my recommendation to entrepreneurs would be is whatever problem or, or solution that you're bringing to the table, who are the different stakeholders, the different roles in your customer that will interface with your solution? And to get feedback from them early in the development process to make sure you understand their critical needs. You know, that reminds me of a, a client that I've worked with for quite a while. And it's in the, I guess, e-health business. It's a combination medical device and software, which so many new medical technology products are. And... The one stakeholder that I think he neglected was the IT groups of his buyers. So he talked to physicians and oh and boy, said, yeah. "Wow, would you would you like this in your practice?" And they asked him questions about, "Is it billable for Medicaid and Medicare, and can I get reimbursed for it for insurance?" So that you know they addressed all those questions, but. They neglected to talk to any IT departments. And wow. so when they went to try to sell it to larger hospital group, you know, in today's world, IT is pretty important in almost every aspect of healthcare, even if it's just privacy, patient records, that sort of thing. But then they found that the review process and the documentation that was required, they, they weren't prepared for it at all. And it affected not only the sales cycle, which was a lot, lot longer, but the credibility, I think, of their offering because they hadn't thought through that. You make an excellent point. I do a lot of work in healthcare IT, and you cannot underestimate the impact of the IT staff, especially in a hospital environment. They have tons and tons of control, and I've even seen, seen big companies make this mistake. Wow. So we, we like to look at stakeholders with the various roles they provide. So what I would call in this example um, where we're talking about healthcare IT, the IT group would be sort of the technical buyers or the user buyers. They're representing the voice of users or the technicians who have to interface with your innovation. Right. They're an important group to make sure you include in your voice of customer research. Well, so so let me, let me stop you just a second. Mm -hmm. When you're just starting out, and maybe you're in a novel area, I mean, it's one thing if you're working in one of those hospital environments, but if you're a solo practitioner, you're a, a surgeon, and you've had your own practice, for example, and this is this would happen, I think, in lots of examples where the person inventing the idea maybe doesn't really understand the buying process or even how their potential customers think and who's involved in the decisions. How do they even figure out who the stakeholders are? Because it's a world that they don't even necessarily know. So that's where talking to the users that interface with your solution or the problem that you're trying to solve is where you learn about the other stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So if you think maybe you're, let's use the obvious example we were talking about, like an electronic medical record. So you might think the first first uh, user groups that you talk to might be the, the nurses or the clinicians that you see entering data into these things. 
those would be the exact folks you'd ask, who else besides folks in your role interface with this problem or a solution like mine? And use them to find the other stakeholders. But I really wanted to emphasize probably the most important stakeholder of all and is often overlooked by entrepreneurs. And we call that the economic buyer, which would be the department or the individual who has the budget to pay for your solution. Yeah, totally different environment. But I think as a consultant myself, that's been one of the biggest challenges is that you think you found the buyer the department had maybe the VP of sales, maybe it's, it's HR, whatever. But then you find out that all of a sudden there's some other stakeholders in the buying process that you didn't know about because somebody else actually approves the budget for it. And then all of a sudden the, the deal you thought you had wrapped up has been blown up off the rails. So that's why important in your voice of customer is not just getting feedback on the problem or on your prototype solution, but also on the buying process. And the folks that you're engaging with, probably mostly the user buyers, those are probably going to be the richest group that entrepreneurs interface with in terms of stakeholders. But those are the folks to ask what is the buying process like? And you know, oftentimes we're talking about hospitals, but what is the buying process like to in the in the hospital environment? Or what is the buying process like in wherever you're innovating? To ask the the, pro, the steps and the stakeholders, and then to learn about each of the roles that those stakeholders have in solving this particular problem. So we call that voice of customer. I, th I think it's been called market research. I think it's been, it, there's been a lot said over the years about having intense customer intimacy as an entrepreneur. And what we see is oftentimes entrepreneurs are really good in one particular aspect of the problem, but not recognizing there's all these adjacencies to the problem, including these buying influences that are really critical upfront in the development process. Well, so, I think what you're suggesting, if I understand correctly, is that you need to be careful you're asking all the right questions. And perhaps that's something that external help, like your company, like others, can really assist with. Because, again, I'm thinking of this client that I, that I referred to, and I know he asked different physician buyers, but he was probably asking more like, how many times would you see using this? Do you see value in it? Do you see how it would help your patients? Do you like the features and benefits of it? As opposed to who are the stakeholders? Who's going to decide whether you use or buy this product and how profitable it is for you? I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I think that when you have a single entrepreneur who's really trying to do it all themselves, that there's a lot of risk. You re they really need to find someone who's a subject matter expert, someone who's not just someone who might use the product, but someone who's aware of the market, aware of the product types of, in the market, and is really a professional 
subject matter expert. And that person can be a consultant. That person could be a partner. They could be brought in as a partner. But it's really hard uh, for an, an advi- entrepreneur. Board, an advisor, a, yes. a, a, Or a board on your board of directors even. That I think is important because it's really hard to know what you don't know. Absolutely. But I think Deb's point, bringing in people who who have other skills is a really critical one. We've talked about market research. We've talked about making sure that you've included the true voice of the customer and the stakeholders. So you have an idea, a new idea for maybe a new product or maybe it's an enhancement of an existing product and you're not sure where you're going to find all the resources you need to do that. What are some of the strategies you might follow to be able to find some of those things that that will help you accelerate the process of developing your new idea? Well, for individual entrepreneurs, there are a variety of resources for small businesses in the community. For example, here in Lake County, there's a variety of small business resources. Because we're speaking to products in the medical technology space, we'd like to give a shout out to the many accelerators that have popped up in Chicagoland in recent years. And accelerators are not a unique concept. They're all over in all the major cities, but they really help incubate inventors with new ideas and surround them by volunteers, experts who are willing to help them shepherd their idea to the marketplace. So let's talk about accelerators just a bit and what they do and also how you find the right one in an increasingly growing and noisy space. Well, I really think it depends on what product market you're, you know, you're in. For instance, we have in Chicago, we have Matter. I, have you heard of Matter? Yeah. It is it is down in the merchandise mart and that's really focused on healthcare products. It's a lot of healthcare IT. Right here in Lake County, we have a new incubator at Rosalind Franklin University. And I think they actually have three members right now uh, that just started. This just started. Three startups. Yeah. So so you need to go to the type of accelerator that focuses on the type of product you want to have. There's another group in Chicago called M-Hub, and it's all around manufacturing. There's another accelerator, and I don't know the name of it, but for food. Yeah. So there, you need to find the accelerator that's near you that has the type of products that you have because that's where your experts will be. That where, That's where your mentors will, will be, yeah. and you can get help. So, so, so would you recommend you just call them or you visit their webs, different websites or network or some combination of all of the above just to all find of the, the above. right but business at the end of the day is about people and people and making a decision to join an accelerator would probably be one you should make with at least some face-to-face contact with that organization and so what kind of support services do accelerators typically offer companies that are trying to innovate and develop new products So we see accelerators offer everything from product development to regulatory to legal to sales and marketing support. And some accelerators and incubators, the terms are sometimes used interchangeably, but in some people's minds they are all different because there's different payment models involved, including some Uh. of these organizations take equity in the entrepreneur's growing business, and others are more fee-for-service oriented. So there's different financial approaches as well, and it's the one that's right for the entrepreneur. 
So what are some of the best practices for innovation? I, I think we can all probably come up with examples that have been in the news, uh, different versions of Coke that weren't really very successful. I mean, where companies probably, for whatever reason, didn't quite do their homework. So, so what are some of the best practices for innovating a new product or service? When we get a chance to get in early, when the product requirements are first being formulated on the back of the napkin or in the inventor's mind, we like to introduce the concept of agile product development. It's been called many things or maybe looking to develop a minimum viable product as the first foray into a new market. I'm assuming, of course, the entrepreneur isn't already having products in this space, but it's the first time putting the toe into this particular big water. And what we like to see about this approach is by d doing the minimum requirements that the market will find acceptable and sort of what I'd call evolving into that marketplace as opposed to doing a big bang. It involves you to use your resources sparingly upfront, get market feedback, go back and innovate and add additional features or functionality and continuously improving the product until it's ready for a full market launch. This way, if you've made a critical error, you find out early before you've spent all your money and before you've blown it all on a big marketing splash on something that's not quite right. For salespeople, in the case of uh, another past client, who hired salespeople to go out and sell a product only to find that the way it was being pitched in the market to which they were pitching was not the right way to go. Ran out of cash pretty darn quickly doing that. The product that I mentioned earlier that really wasn't taking off in the market, the good thing that this company did was that they did a contracted inside sales group and formed distribution relationships with existing distributors, and they didn't invest anything in their own sales force. Yeah. So when it was time for them to pivot, they didn't have this huge expense and all these salespeople to lay off. So that was actually a really good thing. Yeah, well, in this case, they were contract salespeople, but still, it basically ate through all the cash, and because they didn't have a clear marketing strategy, and they were salespeople trying to sell something to call points that really weren't the right places to sell it to. So clearly, either of those approaches, either a minimum viable product or helping with finding, finding other resources to make sure you've got it is probably the way to go. All right. So I am going to have you hold that thought for a second. This is Doris Nagel with the Savvy Entrepreneur. We are here with Deb Kurtz and Andrea Nosek from Kurtz Consulting, who have kindly joined us in the studio. But we need to take a quick station break for a station identification and a word from a few of our sponsors. All right, this is Doris Nagel with The Savvy Entrepreneur, and we are back with our guests live in the studio, Deb Kurtz and Andrea Nosek from Kurtz Consulting, talking about business innovation. Deb, I know one of the topics that you're really passionate about in talking to you in the past is some of the human factors. Talk a little bit about the human factors that come into play when you're dealing with innovation and new product launch. 
Well, let's first of all define what it is. And it, Intamin Factors means a lot of things to different people. You might call it industrial engineering. You might call it usability. The way we like to study it up front is we like to do ethnographic research, which is a fancy word for, besides talking to those key stakeholders about the problems they have and about your prototype and how it addresses those, is to watch how they engage with the problem they have currently and then to have the ability, if possible, to watch them engage with your prototype. So this is beyond the interviewing and the discussions you have with them, but what you see is sometimes very different than what people tell you. For example, we got a great story of innovation here. We had a client who was doing a kit, a term for a bunch of products inside a plastic bag that are used in a hospital setting, and what we had found was is because the kit contained everything the clinician needed, we thought it was a helpful solution. Clinicians are used to this. This is a standard in hospitals. But what we learned is, is in a complex process involving multiple steps, having a whole bag full of goodies, somebody said it was sort of like dumping out your child's trick-or-treat bag (laughs) when they come back, and there's scads of candy everywhere, and you're trying to find the Tootsie Roll, right? (laughs) So the clinician had suggested to us it felt like Halloween and the Tootsie Roll hunt. (laughs) And it gave us an important idea, though, about innovating around packaging. Is if we could help bring structure to to the different elements of a kit that a clinician needed at the process in the steps that they do when working with the patient, that could make their lives simpler. What this led to was a kit within a kit design in the packaging. Yeah. It led to, believe it or not, a patent for our client and huge market acceptance because we were giving innovation that made life simpler for the people who engaged with this product. Not to mention applicability way, way beyond just the specific kit that your client originally was thinking about, almost to the point where the business isn't about the kit, the business is about the novel packaging and presentation of the order in which you get the items out of a kit, which, by the way, could probably even have applications way beyond medical kits. Very, very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about go-to-market strategy. What are some best practices about go-to-market strategy? Well, I think we already sort of touched on one of these points, and that was having an appropriate distribution strategy. And we talked about, you know, not investing in a sales force, maybe doing a contracted sales force. Let me stop you right there. So for people who maybe are still starting their journey or maybe not sure they're going in the right direction. What are some of the options that you could think about and what are some of the pros and cons of those? Well, clearly you could do, as you suggested, have your own sales force. Then you have a large territory with a few people and you have to pay for those people's resources. You can do a contracted sales force and there's plenty of them out there. You could have a distribution relationship with a, a, a distributor uh, or another another company. You can sell online. Right. I, I have clients who sell online. So there are a lot of different ways to bring products to market. Yeah, even eBay. You'll find, you, it's who knows what you'll find on eBay. A- or Etsy or any of those kind of platforms, depending on your product and where the market, where your potential customers reside. Absolutely. The one thing that I want to caution people about is to just assume that someone's going to be able to call on a call point. So I'll, I'll make that a little more clear. 
if there's an existing company that already has a product, and since we've been talking about the hospital, let's just talk about the hospital, and your sales force, whatever type of sales force that is, is comfortable going to the operating room, and now you've got this great new product that's going to be in the emergency department, don't make the assumption that your sales force is going to just pick up and run across the hospital and be successful in a different point of care. It's a different buyer. Yeah. They don't have any credibility. They don't have comfort. They don't have contacts. And what we found in the past, when you do something like that, it's a critical error, and your existing sales force will, will just migrate back to what they were comfortable with, and your new product will just stall in the marketplace. Well, so that's a, in, interesting because, you know, little light bulbs go off as I'm listening to you talk. So one of the issues with hiring salespeople, whether they're employees or whether they're contract salespeople, is that they will tell you, no problem, we can do this. How do you dig a little deeper to get to the point where you can actually be sure that they know what they're talking about? Because you've seen salespeople. Salespeople are can-do people. You can ask someone who's a toy salesperson if they could sell an MRI in a hospital, and they'll tell you, absolutely, I can do that. Well, I think sales reps are willing to try to sell anything. But the one thing about sales reps that's pretty universal, if they try and they're embarrassed or they fail because of something you didn't provide or something that was provided incorrectly, they will never go back to that product again. So some of it isn't just the sales reps. It has to do with did you prepare for them properly? Did you give them the tools that they needed? Were they properly trained? And did you do your homework when you you actually made the product? Did you make something that the customer didn't want to use? You know, did you really do your, your, your homework? I will say one thing that's a bit of advice overall. I recommend everybody who's trying to introduce a new product to the market, whether they're a first-time time entrepreneur or if they're a huge business, they really need to develop a business case about that product that goes over all aspects of the product in the marketplace. From the customer's perspective. From the customer's right? perspective. Mm-hmm. You can find a business case online. doesn't matter which one you, you use, but they address things like marketing, distribution, competition, risks, product features, pricing, all of these things need to be discussed and they need to be ironed out and they need to be done well. You can't just focus on the product. You have to focus on the process around the product. So you raise a great point, which is that if you have a new product, you're just starting to launch or an enhanced product or service, it's really important to think out all the steps maybe it's the old wallpaper adage that my mother used to say which is cut once measure twice you know basically stop and really plan your approach and make sure you've thought of all the contingencies when you're a consultant unfortunately all too often people don't come to you at the beginning they think they know how to do it They come to you when things have gone off the rails. So how do you sort out how best to get on track? Because 
oftentimes things go off the rails for a variety of reasons. Maybe you hired the wrong salesperson that didn't have the right expertise. Maybe you hadn't designed the product so that it had great customer acceptance and was solving a problem or a pain point for them. How do you sort through all those threads and help get a product back on track again? So thanks for asking that because that's actually a, a large point of entry for us when we start working with new customers. It's great to be involved in the in the early product requirements, but oftentimes we do get brought in when things have failed to meet expectation. Yeah. So we do a due diligence that involves looking at everything from the product to the way that it's marketed to the way that it's sold and get a lot of feedback from the customer perspective. But this due diligence we do is not just externally focused on the customer and how it's fitting and how it's solving their problems. There's an internal due diligence as well. Sometimes we find that the sales force never really believed in the product for a variety of reasons, or they weren't compensated right in terms of the time it would take to actually bring this new product to market. Or sometimes we find that just be as Andrea's point about the OR salesperson doesn't have the emergency department contacts, we sometimes find clients say, oh, we thought this was going to be a hospital product, but now what we're finding is it's really better suited to long-term care. And we don't have a sales force that calls upon long-term care. Right. So one particular solution, we brought two of our clients together. We had a client oh, with a sales great. force long-term care, and we had a client with a hospital product that really was better suited to long-term care. Wow. We brought them together and they formed a distribution relationship. Fantastic. So these are some Fan of the ways you can solve your problems. You don't have to necessarily do it all yourself as an entrepreneur. Looking for partnerships to shore up your weaknesses is a really great idea when you have limited resources. Yeah, that's a topic that I know your company as well as my own little business are very passionate about, which is finding the right partners. It is not an easy task. It's almost like as difficult as finding a, a, a personal relationship or making a lifelong friend. There are a lot of considerations that go into it and things that sound like a great partnership maybe are not. Talk a little bit about how you approach partnerships for your clients and what you counsel them to look for and how you help them find a good partner. Well, one thing that's really important is culture. Do you have the same belief system as the people that you want to interact with? Do you have the same goals? If you don't have a culture that's compatible, you will fail. Yep. So how do you dig down on that? So we, we help clients do this quite a bit. And we first start with the list of requirements that you want in your partner. So suppose you've got a great product, but you don't have a sales force. So you're looking for a company who doesn't have a product like yours, but has a great sales force. So we start off by doing the really logical list of requirements. And then we like to introduce our client to a variety of several, half dozen even or more different potential partners and then after the first meeting, and we recommend that there always be at least face-to-face -face meetings, after the first meeting, then we start developing a scorecard that includes some of these softer factors like 
Andrea called it culture, but we might say, do we have the same vision for the speed to which this, this business discussion is going to occur? So for example, we've got one client who thinks that we'll just ink a deal this week and next week your sales team won't be off selling. And what we'll find is the distribution company thinks that it's got to go through 10 rounds of lawyers and we won't launch until our national sales meeting, which is next year. So you start finding there's different cultural aspects about how each company looks at the next steps towards building that. And then you start asking the question of, does it feel like we're aligned in terms of our vision, our values, and our culture? And that becomes pretty clear to the client after they've had a chance to have some of this face-to-face engagement. Interesting. Andrea, did you have something to add? You look like you're poised to... Yeah, I want to make one comment. Deb has an an amazing number of contacts, and I think it helps to align yourself with someone who's really in the know in the industry. So she's able to put together a list of six people where maybe somebody else wouldn't have been so successful at that. Yeah. You're lucky you operate in healthcare where, frankly, I, I joke with people, there are no six degrees of separation. Having worked at Baxter Healthcare and Cardinal Health and other healthcare companies, it seems like uh, anybody in healthcare, you probably have mutual connections. But it is important that you have a great network, not just as a consultant, but I think as an entrepreneur, you need a very large network of people with a variety of expertise, whether it's raising capital and financial people who are bankers and accountants and lawyers, but you also need people with marketing and communications and public relations. The list goes on and on, really. So That is actually one of the big challenges for many innovators. Um, The makers sometimes are kind of introverted. They're not people with big big networks and they need to find someone that they can work with who does have that read that they just don't personally have. So that's a big problem. Yeah, I'm sure it is. So so that's the introvert who probably comes up with lots of great ideas. I'm sure there's the reverse though, where it's somebody who's much more of a people person but and they've got this idea, but maybe they don't know how to do the technology piece of it. You know, I can think of people who who dream up apps all day long, but they have absolutely no idea how to do the coding to actually make the thing work. So, Absolutely. We have a client that is a medical device company, and they had a great idea for an adjacent product. It was a skincare product. It was completely out of their core. And so they actually contracted with us to develop a new skincare product. And it was great because we had the expertise and the context and the knowledge. They had the great idea, and they wanted to focus on organics, which were growing in the marketplace. And we worked together to bring that product to fruition. It was just something that wasn't in their it wasn't in their area. It was a good thing to do. So you don't have to do it yourself. You can contract that out. Well, the thing is, is in today's environment, there's probably somebody out there who has what you need. Sometimes the challenge, I think, is finding that right match and sometimes it feels like looking for a needle in a haystack but keeping networked whether it's with a great group of advisors or whether it's fellow entrepreneurs or it's formal like executive networking breakfasts or whatever it is I think 
is a really important thing for almost any entrepreneur out there. That's why the incubators or accelerators are so good for that introverted entrepreneur because they're surrounded by other people in a similar situation. So it helps them get out into the network. Well, not only that, but one thing that a couple of colleagues who have been part of those have mentioned is that it's inspirational. The fact that somebody else is struggling, so you don't feel so alone. It's not, I'm a failure, it's, This is a point in normal business development that happens to other people, but it also can be very inspirational to be around companies that have solved some of the problems that you're dealing with, right? Absolutely. Uh, We only have a few minutes left. I know your firm is really passionate also about marketing communications. Talk a little bit about the importance of marketing and marketing communications for innovation and new product launches. So I'd really like to focus this on how medtech companies communicate. And we were joking about this the other day. My family still thinks that I do Super Bowl commercials because I say I'm a healthcare <laughs> marketer. And I said, no, actually, no, I thought you did too. No, I'm just a Super kidding. Bowl commercial because the tool that we use in healthcare to promote our products is a clinical study. So what a Super Bowl commercial is to a consumer packaged goods company, a clinical study that shows the efficacy and safety of your product is the equivalent marketing communication for a med tech company. So we focus a lot in helping our clients get to the point where they can do clinical studies with principal investigators. And this means the clinicians who are the experts, the doctors in this space, who are bringing life-saving cures to patients, when they use the product or or the solution that has been innovated by the entrepreneur and get a great patient outcome and do this many times over and publish it in a peer-reviewed medical journal, that's the goal. So here's a question I have. So how do I know if I need clinical marketing or not as opposed to just nice glossy brochures and how-to videos and things like that. When do I need clinical marketing? Well, as part of your voice of customer and learning about how your products are bought and sold, it's, it's going to become evident to you that the people who are making decisions to bring in a solution such as yours need to see evidence. You know, and and medical is an evidence-driven field. So you generally hear that you need to to provide evidence. So that evidence can look in different ways. The evidence might be the glossy brochure, or increasingly, as we see in healthcare, the evidence is to show that there is a health outcome and an economic benefit to the product or solution that you've innovated. Well, and also that there's acceptance already. I know in the healthcare space, people talk about finding key opinion leaders and I'm, I'm assuming that's part a, a part of what you're talking about. Most definitely. We have a client right now that could really benefit from a clinical study. So they engaged with us to find a right key opinion leader, so a leading physician who's published in the field, who's written clinical guidelines that are accepted by the other physicians in the field, which are the best practices that how care is delivered. So when you help your client find a key opinion leader like that, and you get the key opinion leader interested in the solution enough to study it, 
that is the home run for us in medical technology market. Well, and not only study it, but to be a visible advocate, be willing to stand up, either publish a paper or speak at a conference and say, this product really works. It's it's good for patients because of X, Y, and Z. It's good for your practice. And I think that I don't want to call it me too syndrome, but I think there is a certain amount in not just healthcare, but in a lot of fields where some of the retail products, consumer facing products have movie stars and sports figures. And, and the whole idea is to convey, I, I use this product, you should want to use it too. And it works. Certainly there's a gravitas when a heavy hitter, a luminary in any field, publishes great outcomes that have to do with your product. No doubt, as humans, we are all influenced by that. But I'll also remind you that, you know, the evidence-driven approach in healthcare was relying upon the ability to prove that your solution is a better mousetrap. And, and it's hard to put a price on that proof. It's very difficult to pull this off as entrepreneurs because, you know, there's limited funding for medical studies. The National Institute of Health does a great job in writing grants, but it's not necessarily going to get a grant to study your product. But to find clinicians who have populations of patients and interest in your, your area of solution and potentially the ability to execute a clinical study these are the things we help our clients find and, and help them execute. And it's, it's, um, it's a home run for us in, in med tech when we can get such a clinical study to fruition and then have that key opinion leader speak about it from behind the podium. Those are great words of advice. Just uh, uh, one last question before we wrap up. How did the two of you get into this business and... What is it that motivates you to get up out of bed every day and be enthused about helping your clients? I think Andrew and I have really similar stories, and we both um, started our careers in the technical field. We studied technical things, got MBAs in marketing, and then went on to start working for healthcare companies. And, you know, there's something to be said for the passion of bringing new products and solutions to the market that improve patient care. That is its reward every day. But I'll be frank that for us, you might have picked up from us is that, you know, we view this as a people business. We're making patients better, but our clients and the clinicians who work with the products and solutions that we develop become really important to us as individuals. And I will admit, we do keep a scorecard between us. We like to see that in situations where we help clients, that we see our clients shining in their own organization. And we do keep track of what promotions result from members of our client team where we've had the opportunity to serve as consultants. And I'm not saying we got people promoted, but maybe I am. <laughs> creating an environment where their natural skills, a light is shown on their skills, and they have an opportunity to excel. That's what keeps me going. How about you, Andrea? Well, I met Deb through the Healthcare Business Women's Association, and I admired her greatly. So she'd been in the business of consulting for a long time, and I had been working for, you know, a big healthcare company. 
And we would go to networking events and we would be there together. And one of the things I noticed was that there were three kinds of people in the room. There were people who had jobs who were miserable because they were being asked to do so much more post-2008 and all of the (laughs) financial drama. There were people in the room that didn't have jobs who were in job search and they were miserable because they didn't have jobs. And then there was this third group of people that were just having a great time. And those were the consultants. And I'm like... I want to do that, and I admire Deb so much, I want to do it with her. Excellent. Well, if folks want to learn more about Kurt's Consulting, what's the best way to reach you? Well, we're people people, so we love it if you pick up the phone and give us a call. So 224-715-1538. Or, of course, you can visit us at our website at DebraKurtz.com or look us up on LinkedIn, Deborah Kurtz and Andrea Nosek. Fantastic. Thank you both again to Deb and to Andrea for being with us this week. That's our show, and thanks to everybody for listening. You can find helpful information and learn more about my consulting or legal practice at ForsythiaLaw.com or GlobalocityServices.com, where there's also all sorts of free tools and resources that you might find useful as an entrepreneur. Don't forget to email me with suggested topics, challenges, or questions, or to just shoot the breeze. dnagel at lakesradio.org. I'd love to hear from you. Now, be sure to join us next Saturday when our guest will be Barry Goodman. He's a partner at a company called SVA, which is a company that focuses on building business value, particularly as part of a transition plan for a business or succession planning. Until then, happy entrepreneuring. This is Doris Nagel with Savvy Entrepreneur. Goodbye.